Well, over the years, I've had the opportunity and the privilege uh, and really the honor to officiate a, a lot of weddings. But at the same time, I've also officiate a lot of funerals as well. Now, it, it really is an honor to, to be a part of either of those. It, it really is. They're both significant days in the lives of the families involved. However, if I was to choose between the two, um, I'd prefer to do one over the other. And I'm not trying to make light of that at, at all, but I, I think we can all agree in here that if we were given the choice between attending a, a wedding of good friends or a funeral... I think we'd all choose to participate in the wedding. Now, why is that? Well, because a, a, a funeral is, is a day, as we think through it, a day filled with, with sadness, a day filled with loss. A funeral is painful. It's, it's heavy. It, it seems, when you're sitting in there, like it, this is final. It's what it seems like. Whereas a wedding is a day filled with great joy and, and celebration. There's not that same, that same heaviness that a funeral brings about. Now, to all the dads in here who've had to give away their daughter, I've not walked my daughter down any aisle yet to give her to another man. Uh, so this might change for me coming up in, in the distant future, but within the best of circumstances where, where, where there's love and there's joy on both sides of that aisle. A, a wedding really is a day to rejoice, a day to laugh and celebrate and, and join in with the hope of this new couple that's coming together, that's starting their new lives together. You know, in some regard, a, a wedding is almost kind of an escape for us from, from the heaviness and the brokenness of the world that's around us. For those few short hours when we gather together and to celebrate, we're, we, we kind of forget what's waiting for us when we leave the reception. What's waiting for us out those doors is the hardness and the brokenness of life even just the mundaneness of life. Whereas when you're sitting in a funeral, it's just kind of reminding you continually of the brevity of life. It's reminding you of the hardships and the suffering of life, often that we face on a daily basis. Now, in both those situations, both those events, we, we find our hope as believers in Christ, but, but a wedding is drawing our attention and our gaze to really what our hearts really long for. And what is it that our, that our hearts truly long for? How does every fairy tale that we ever read as, as little kids growing up or every fairy tale we read to our kids or grandkids, how do they all end? Happily ever after. Happily ever after. All right, a, a perfect, complete, and unconditional love where they're, where they're riding off into, into the sunset together, seemingly facing no suffering or difficulty, just, just good from that point forward. We want that for ourselves. Unending celebration. We want that for ourselves. We want a life freed from, from oppression and, and the hardship and sufferings that come in life. We want, we want there never to be an end to gathering with good food and good friends and lots of laughter and lots of joy. We want eternal security. We want hope for a bright future where every day is better than the one before it. And so the pressing question that's on our hearts then is, will that ever happen? Every human being that's ever lived longs for that, longs for kind of what a wedding pictures, celebration and life free from hardship. And it's what we want, but will it ever happen? Will we actually ever get to live happily ever after? This psalm answers that question for us with a resounding yes, a resounding yes, but to get there, to arrive at 
that happily ever after, we, as we see in the psalm, we have to get there by forsaking all others, by forsaking earthly treasures, by forsaking anything and everything that would, that would deter us from glad submission to our great King of Kings, the bridegroom of the church. And this is hard for us because we love the things of this world. We just do. We can sit in here for an hour and say, no, we don't, but we, we know what our life looks like when we walk out these doors, when we're sent out into the world. There's that temptation where we, we, just, we just love the things of this world. We love the comforts that come with it. And so it's hard for us to forsake it and to leave it behind, but that's what we see in the psalm. To, to arrive at our happily ever after, we must forsake all others. Just as a bride and a groom make vows to one another on their wedding day that they are forsaking all others and that they're coming and clinging to one another, so must we as the church, the bride of Christ, forsake all others and cling tightly by faith to the groom who is Jesus. It's only through faith in Jesus that we experience this happily ever after. And so let's dig into this psalm this morning. Let's understand this psalm so we might better understand the hope to which we cling to in Christ, the great king, the bridegroom of the church, which is his bride. See, this psalm is both, as we read through it, both a royal psalm and it's at the same time a messianic psalm. You see, it's a royal psalm in that it's a beautiful poem prepared for the occasion of a royal wedding. Now, we don't know for sure which, which specific king of Israel this psalm was, was written for, but more than likely, most commentators agree that this psalm was written of King Solomon and his wedding to the daughter of Pharaoh. And so we want to remember that as we, as we dig into this psalm later on, especially when we get to verses 10 and 11 in the, in the charge and the words given to, to the bride. So this, this psalm is a, is a royal psalm written to a specific people at a specific time in a specific place. But at the same time, this psalm is, both, is a messianic psalm and that the words that are used here are so extravagant and the words used here are so ex- exaggerated that, that it must point beyond any earthly king to a future Messiah, which, which Israel was waiting for. A future Messiah, the great king who would reign forever, which had been promised from, from ages past to the nation of Israel, the great eternal king who would come from the line of David. See, David's reign as king, as Solomon's reign as, as king, his son, all earthly kings of Israel that were coming after David and Solomon were, were nothing but a foreshadowing of the one who would come and reign and rule forever with justice, perfect justice, perfect truth, perfect righteousness. It was Alexander McLaren, he was the greatest, great Scottish minister of the late 1800s, he said this of this psalm. He says, either, either we have here a piece of poetical exaggeration far beyond the limits of poetic license, or a greater than Solomon is here. And that's what we have here in this psalm, this 45th psalm. See, this 45th psalm is a, is a unique psalm, unique beyond really all the other psalms we've read up to this point, because this psalm is, is breathing life and hope and joy into God's children as, as ones who will one day one day be united and, and joined together with the great eternal king, the bridegroom who will love them, who will cherish them, who will protect his bride where they will live happily ever after. And so this is a psalm calling all of its readers, as we read this today, to look up, 
to look to the bridegroom, as we've sung of this morning. Notice as well the, the placement of the psalm and what it's come after. If you've been with us for the last several weeks here, what, what have been the last three or so psalms that we've walked through? Have they been light, uh, easy psalms to walk through, or have they been heavy, difficult psalms to walk through? Well, the last three psalms, Psalm 42 and 43 and 44, have been incredibly heavy. 42 and 43 wrestled with spiritual depression. 44, as we walked through last week, Aaron walked through last week, asked this question, has God abandoned us? Has he rejected us? These are heavy and weighty psalms. And so Psalm 45 is placed here in the Psalter very purposefully, very intentionally, as, as, as Israel would read this and worship from this. See, it's here to, to remind Israel after very heavy, very weighty psalms that, that God has not forsaken them that he has not rejected them, that he has not abandoned them. And we read this today with the same hope. He has not forsaken us, rejected us, abandoned us, but is coming for us just like a groom pursues his bride. So let's dig in. Verse 1 is this, this extravagant language used which, which reveals that these words are not just addressed only for a royal wedding, but a divine wedding. Look at verse 1 again. Follow along. It says, the psalmist says, my heart overflows with a pleasing theme. He says, I address my verses to the king. My tongue is like the pen of a, of a ready scribe. So the po- poet's heart here is, is simmering. That's a language that's being used here in, in Hebrew. It's, it's simmering. It's stirring. It's beginning to percolate, boil over with this emotion and this excitement. As he's thinking and he's looking upon this royal wedding, but then he's looking at this royal wedding and his heart is being stirred to look beyond it. And ultimately, he's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. His heart is being drawn to this divine wedding between the eternal king of kings, the, the bridegroom of the church, the one promised from David's line to his f- highly favored bride. James Montgomery Boyce says it this way regarding the poet's stirred emotions here. He says this, that this is not only a noble theme, it is the theme of themes. It is the ultimate meaning of all history, the story of the ages. I love that phrase, the story of the ages. You see, the story of the ages that we have been invited into is the story of redemption, the story of a, of a God pursuing his people like a bridegroom pursues his bride, the story of a God redeeming his people through the atoning work of Christ. This is the story of Scripture and that all of Scripture, every word of it is pointing to this one amazing reality, the story of the ages that God is reconciling and redeeming a broken, sinful people back to himself through no work of their own, but merely and purely through his grace. That all that is wrong and all that is broken in this world will come undone. And a new heaven and a new earth will be established. And God's people will dwell forever with him. And a perfect peace is with a perfect joy. With an unending happiness and harmony. Happily ever after. That's the story of the ages. That's what the psalmist is pointing to. That's why his heart is so stirred with praise for what is happening. His heart is stirred ultimately in praise of King, the Messiah, Jesus, who is still yet to come, who this psalmist was longing for and looking toward. Now at any wedding, when you sit there at a wedding, our eyes are fixed upon the groom and fixed upon the bride. We watch them. We gaze upon them. We celebrate with them. And that's what the rest of the psalm begins to do. 
It gives us this picture of the groom and words to the groom. And then, then it gives a picture of the bride and words to the bride. And, and as we read it, we're, we're there. We're there with them in that, in that wedding day, on that wedding day. So let's gaze upon the groom. Let's gaze upon the bride. And through this royal wedding, let's look and see Jesus' love for the church, his bride. So verses 2 through 9 give us this, this picture of the groom, this picture of the groom, this picture of the king here. And so what do we see regarding this, this king? What character traits are we seeing about this groom here? Well, in verse 2, we see that the, the king is, is set apart. The groom is set apart. Look at verse 2. It says, you are the most handsome of the sons of men. The grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Now, we recognize this, this reality even here within royalty that we see even today. Now, we don't have royalty, obviously, in, in America, but we, the closest we know and recognize of royalty is obviously the British monarchy, which is, as you look at it and, and, you, and you gaze upon how they are structured, the British monarchy is, is very clearly set apart from the rest of the common people within England. Now, they might try to relate with the commoners, but let's be honest, they're not, you're not relating with us. They can't relate with the, the everyday people that are living their lives in England. They're set apart. They seek to engage with the people, but their lives are nothing like, nothing like the rest of the citizens that live in England. Not even close, right? That is set apart. Queen Elizabeth just recently celebrated her platinum jubilee, 70 years on the throne. And, and what happened? The whole country of England shut down, paused for, for days to recognize and to celebrate her reign, right? That's set apart. No country sets uh, their, their whole uh, agenda aside, pushes on pause to celebrate any other anniversary of any other just regular person. But when the queen is celebrating an anniversary, the country pauses to celebrate with her. Right? See, that's the king here in Psalm 45. He's set apart. But remember that Psalm 45 is rolling beyond even any mere earthly king. Solomon here that most likely this psalm was written about was set apart as king, but he was still flawed, deeply flawed. Only Jesus can actually truly fit the title perfectly, the most handsome or the most excellent of the sons of men. Only Jesus fits that title perfectly. Grace surely was poured upon the lips of Solomon, and we, we know and we've read of his wisdom and his word, and, and, and people would come from all around the known world to, to hear from him and to glean from his wisdom. So, so Solomon spoke wisely, and he did speak courageously as, as king of Israel, but only Jesus spoke in perfect wisdom. Only Jesus could speak and demons tremble. Only Jesus' words could cause storms to subside. Only Jesus' words could heal sickness and disease and even call the dead back to life. Only Jesus' words could bring eternal life. When Jesus spoke and masses of people began to follow him or to hear from him, wanting the miracles but not really wanting him, as soon as he began to speak of them turning away from the things of the world and following him, the masses would, would begin to desert him because they didn't want to give up their comfortable lives. And so as the masses would, would abandon him, Jesus at one point looked to his, his disciples and said, are you going to leave me as well? And in John 6, Peter replied to Jesus asking him this, and he said, Lord, to whom shall we go? What's he say? You have the words of eternal life. 
I can't find words of eternal life anywhere else in the world, Peter says. It's only you. So friends, let me ask you, as you hear that response from Peter, who are you turning to to find eternal life? And whose words are you trusting right now? There's only one who is truly set apart from the rest who can offer and give eternal life. There's only one whose words will bring healing and forgiveness of sins. It's the great king. It's the great bridegroom for whom our hearts and souls were made for. It's Jesus. Hear the words of Jesus again in John 5. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. So do you believe? Do you believe in the words of Jesus and Jesus alone? If not, the invitation to you this morning is to repent, which means to turn. means to turn from the things of the world. Turn from your sin and trust in the only one who can actually save, who has the words of eternal life. So we see this king is set apart like no other. But what else do we see about the king as we walk through the psalm? We also see, secondly, that the king is mighty. The king's mighty. Look at verses 3 through 5. The psalmist says, Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty. In your majesty, ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. So both King David and his son Solomon, who reigned after David, they, they were mighty. They were mighty, absolutely. David was mighty in battle. He was fearless. He was courageous. Solomon, when he reigned and he ruled, he ruled over this massive empire. Solomon became wealthier than anyone who had ever lived. You'd look at both of them, both David and Solomon, and you would look at, in our perspective, from our perspective, and say they are mighty. And in many regards, absolutely they were. Yet, as we said within that last point, they were still deeply flawed. David, as mighty as he was in battle, didn't win every battle. David, as we've walked through the Psalms over the past three to four years, we often saw David pursued by enemies. David often chased out of his own kingdom by close friends who had turned against him. Solomon got lost in his own riches and drifted from the sufficiency of his God. Their might faded with their age. And even with everything that they had, everything that they had accumulated, they still died one day. They still breathed out their last breath. Their hearts still stopped beating and they had to leave everything that they had accumulated on this earth behind them. And so this picture of might is again only seen perfectly as we roll beyond this royal wedding and look to the messianic portion of this psalm. It's only seen perfectly in a Messiah who would come. See, it was Jesus who didn't wage military conquests, but Jesus did wage war against Satan, sin, and death. He fought the battle for our souls, and Jesus won victoriously over sin and over death. Though Jesus hanging on that cross had nails driven through both his hands and his feet, in the end, it was Jesus' resurrection from the grave that was the final arrow that sunk deep within the heart of death. And as he walked out of that tomb three days after his crucifixion, he was fulfilling the promise all the way back from Genesis 3 
that promise that this future Messiah would crush the head of the great enemy of God, the great enemy of humanity, which is Satan. That's might. And there's coming a day when Jesus, our bridegroom, will return. He'll return. And he's returning for his bride, the church, the bride of Christ. And when he does, when he comes to pursue and take his bride to himself, he's coming in victory. No enemy will ever be able to stand against King Jesus. In fact, his enemies that will rise up to try and overthrow will be crushed, not through a battle, but through a simple word of his mouth. See the similarities. We read of the the, the might of, of the kings of Israel here, but see the similarity as we read in Revelation 19 of the mightiness of Jesus as he reigns and rules and as he returns for his church. In Revelation 19, we see this picture of Jesus that John writes, this vision that he sees, It says, then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses, From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has the name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That's a tattoo, right? Written on his thigh, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. No one can compete with that. That's Jesus. That's might. That's the mighty king of kings. That's our bridegroom coming for his bride. We sang of it this morning. Where's your heart stirred in anticipation for this day when the bridegroom returns? So he is returning, church. Take heart. Be of good courage. Let not your hearts be troubled in the day of suffering. Yes, the world is broken. Yes, this world is flawed. Yes, we ourselves are flawed. Yes, this world is deeply disturbed. But Jesus is coming again. And it will be restored. And so we look to him. We look to the bridegroom. Why? Well, because thirdly, we see of this, of this king, of this bridegroom in the psalm that the king reigns. We see the king reigns. Look at verse 6. He says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. This verse is so clearly pointing beyond itself to Christ that the author of Hebrews references this psalm, this statement when speaking of the glorious Christ in Hebrews 1 when he quotes this verbatim. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. We see here in Jesus the fulfillment of the promise that was made to David in 2 Samuel 7, God comes to David and says to him and makes his promise to David and says in 2 Samuel seven sixteen, In your house, your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Now from the line of David, this is what God was promising. From you, David, is coming a king who will reign forever. David was not that man. He was not the eternal king. He was a foreshadowing of it. Solomon was not that man. The many kings who would come after Solomon were not the eternal king who would reign forever. But the promise was made, and so Israel was waiting and longing for this expectant king to come. Who is he? This is how they lived. Is this the next king? Is this him? And they were never aware. It was a foreshadowing of the one who would come, 
who is Christ. So when this psalmist wrote, he was writing under this inspiration of the Spirit, holding fast to that promise that was made to David that from his line would come one day the king who'd reign in righteousness forever, that his throne would be established forever. And that's why the psalm here is, is, is messianic. It's pointing beyond itself. There's no way this verse, verse 6, could refer to Solomon only. And thank God that our ultimate hope is not placed in any mere mortal. Because kings come and go. Presidents in our context, governors, mayors, pastors, any in any form of leadership come and go. Some do good, some not so much. Some seek to do right, other leaders seek to control and dominate and abuse. We live in a day and an age where, where there is little to no trust of really anyone in any type of leadership. Anyone who's given any sense of authority is, is automatically then met with skepticism. Skepticism and kind of just waiting for when's this person going to fall? When's this person going to begin abusing the power that they've been given? And some of this skepticism, unfortunately, is well earned. Solomon here was a, was a wise king. David, his father before him, led well. But again, they were only mere mortals. They made mistakes. They were sinners. Most, most who would come after them, who would sit on that throne, led very poorly. Yet this psalm's calling on us, the readers, to look to a king who reigns perfectly. Verse 6 mentions that the, that the scepter, what, what represents his reign and rule, of that kingdom is one of uprightness. Verse 7 says that you have loved righteousness. You've hated wickedness. See, Jesus is he's the leader. He's the king we actually really need. He's the one we truly long for. He's the king who will always do what's right. Always will do what's right. For us, it's, it's hard to ever fully trust anyone. Because we've been hurt one too many times. We've been betrayed one too many times. We've been let down one too many times. But Jesus is that king who will never harm you. He will never hurt you. He will never abandon you. He will always do what's right for you. That's the hope we rest in. That's the hope in which we long for and look for in his glorious return. That's a picture of the groom, the king of kings, and he's coming for his bride. And so let's look to the bride as the psalm continues and gaze upon the character of the bride. So here we see now as the psalm continues a picture, a picture of the bride, a picture of the bride. So the first thing we see about the bride is that the bride is exalted. The bride is exalted. Look at verse 9. It says, at your right hand. Now, the, the, these words are now to the, the, to the bride here who's coming to the king on this wedding day. At your right hand stands the queen in gold of Ophir. Verse 13, all glorious is the princess in her chamber with robes interwoven with gold. Ophir was a, a, a biblical place known for its, its gold and for its precious metals. And so this bride is now standing on his wedding day alongside the king of Israel and is decked out in, in the finest of jewelry. Again, have a picture of just a, a bride on her wedding day, right? Uh, she's looking glorious, the psalm says here. She's greatly exalted as the bride of this king of Israel. The gold that she's wearing is representing even to us her value and her worth as one who is sought after by the king, the one who's pursued by the king. I mean, what a picture this is to you and I of our status before Jesus, that we're pursued 
that we're valued, that there's intrinsic worth within us that's given to us by Christ himself. Now, as I read this and as it rolls beyond, as we begin to see myself and ourself, the church, in this psalm, I'll be honest with you. I don't view myself ever as one who is deserving or worthy of any exaltation like, because I have nothing of value to bring to the table. And yet, in Christ, what we see in the Word of God is that in Christ and because of Christ, we are exalted as the bride. We are exalted as the bride of Christ, the church. And now, because of what Christ has done and is doing in our lives, we have and carry great value and worth. That's a picture we see of the church, even in Revelation 22, when we look to that wedding day. Or Revelation 21, I mean, when on that day when this divine wedding takes place, where, where the church, the bride of Christ, and, and the bridegroom, Christ himself, are joined together forever and ever, we see the church on that wedding day, that divine wedding day, in all of her beauty. John, again, writes in Revelation 21, he says this, of this vision, he says, Then came one of the seven angels, saying, Come, and I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a, a great high mountain. He showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. But notice in Revelation that, that their glory is not coming from within ourselves, but from God. John says in Revelation that we're radiating the glory of God, the glory of his work of redemption through his son in us. So we're, so we're right in saying that, that we bring nothing of value to the table, to the wedding day. Everything comes from God himself. It's his glory then that's showered down upon us. It's his beauty that's making us beautiful, that's making us desirable. We're exalted because Christ has been exalted and we are in Christ This is the beauty of the church, the exaltation of the bride. But we also see here in the psalm that the bride is also accepted. The bride's accepted. Verses 10 and 11 say, Hear, O daughter, and consider, incline your ear, forget your people and your father's house, and the king will desire your beauty. Since he is your Lord, bow to him. Verse 14 begins by saying, In many colored robes she's led to the king. Just as the queen here was accepted by the king on that wedding day, so are we, the bride of Christ, accepted through faith in the finished work of Jesus on the cross. That our acceptance is not based upon any work of our own. We cannot beautify ourselves enough so as to be desirable. It's Christ who has made us and is making us beautiful. It's through Christ that we find our full acceptance. Just as the queen was on that day clothed in the finest of linens, the finest of gold, the rarest of jewelry, we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. In Ephesians 5, the Apostle Paul is speaking to husbands and wives, and he's teaching them how marriage is ultimately this this incredible reflection of the relationship between Christ and his bride. And so he he gives these, these instructions to husbands on how they're to, just as Jesus does, to love and care for their wives as And he shows us that this is exactly what Christ has done for us. So in Ephesians 5 says this, Paul says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for it so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Why? So that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot 
or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. You see, our beauty comes from Jesus who has saved us, who has given us a new heart, who has cleansed us, who has forgiven us so that we might then, because of the righteousness of Christ that's on us through faith in him, be able to stand in his presence and come before him in splendor and without blemish. I mean, do do you hear the, the freedom in those words? The freedom that comes in those words, that your salvation, your acceptance, your acceptance by God is not based upon any work of yours but the finished work of Christ. That we don't come to Jesus and he's like, eh, I don't know, do a little bit more work. Then we go back to our room, back to our chamber, and we clean ourselves up, and then we try to come out again to the, to the bridegroom. And our, this, this good? Eh, a little bit more, still some rough around the edges there, kind of smooth out. So we have to go back and try and clean ourselves to hopefully be accepted. That's not what Paul says. That's not what Scripture says, that we don't come before Christ trying to beautify ourselves, but that Christ himself has presented the church to himself in splendor, that he's doing and done the work, that, that we are accepted and beautiful because Jesus has made you so through faith in him. And it's through faith in Christ alone. You hear it even in, in the words to the queen in verse 10, forget your people and your father's house. I know that sounds harsh, but, but that's what we see on a wedding day, right? Like we're, we're forsaking all others. We're leaving our, our parents' home. We're coming and establishing our own. That's what's taking place on a wedding day. Again, this was most likely addressed to the daughter of Pharaoh. Egypt was, was wealthy as well. There were many things in her homeland that were appealing, but the charge to the queen is to let go of the past and find a greater joy and a greater acceptance in the king. We're called to forget the past, to let go of the things of this world and to hold fast to Jesus alone, to cling to the bridegroom. Jesus said it himself in Luke 9, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Stronger words are given by Jesus a few chapters later. Luke 14, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And so what he's saying here is that all earthly relationships compared to our love for Jesus, must look like hate because of our passionate zeal for Christ above all things. Walter Chantry makes this application. He says, it's painful to leave behind mother and father, son and daughter. We're attached to the beauties and friendships of this world. Forget them all. The king will more than make up for all. Someday you will look back upon the parting with temporal things and think your hesitation silly and ill-founded. When you sit in the ivory palace, arrayed in the gold of Ophir, at the right hand of the eternal king, you will wonder what you saw in those former things. You will never regret it. Carry through with your discerning choice. The king must be your one and only love henceforth. And so I ask, is the king your one and only greatest love? Last thing we see is that the bride is sought after. In verse 12, it says, The people of Tyre will seek your favor with gifts, the richest of the people. What's taking place here is that the queen, through her now relationship with the king, was sought after by all. 
that many would now travel great distances to be near her, to hear from her, to be blessed by her. So, so as we roll this to today in the church, in our union with Christ, the church, the bride of Christ, should be having a cultural influence in the world today. Now, we're not looking for acceptance from the world, but Spurgeon once said, a holy church will be a powerful church. Meaning that if we're submitting to the reign and the rule of Christ, if we're truly living in peace with one another, if we are truly living counterculturally and finding deep, meaningful, lasting, eternal joy in Jesus above all others, that that is going to have an impact in the world. And it's going to cause some within the world to pause and ask us for the hope that's within us. Why do you live the way you do? When we suffer the way we do, when we suffer but with hope, when we endure hardship and trial but with joy, when we show the world that everything can be taken from us, but, but if we have Christ, that's enough, then the church will actually then begin to have influence in the world because the world is desperate for those things, desperate for hope, desperate for lasting joy, desperate for meaning that goes beyond the temporary. This psalm concludes with a, a benediction of sorts. In verse 16, we see that in, in place of your fathers shall be your sons. You will make them princes in, in all the earth. And so the, the poet here is, is kind of blessing this, this union. Now the attention in verse 16 here is, is turning back to the king. The, the psalmist is closing with this blessing of this marriage and, and speaking of the fruitfulness that will come from their union, that, that princes and kings will come from them. As we roll beyond this to the picture of the union of Christ with the church, our, our thoughts are turned to the to the many that, that Christ is calling to himself through the witness and the testimony of the church, through the faithful proclamation of the gospel that Jesus saves. And as he closes this song in verse 17, he says, I will, will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, nations will praise you forever and ever. We must ask ourselves, are we doing what the psalmist did here? Are we praising the great king who has purchased us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the, the kingdom of his beloved son? Are we delighting in and working to see people from every nation and every tribe and every language come to praise the great king of kings as well, to become worshipers of King Jesus? Are we waiting and longing and yearning for his return? Did you sense the yearning and longing for the, the wedding day in this psalm? I've heard it said before that, that Jesus' first coming into this world was to initiate his betrothal of his bride, the engagement. And now we're eagerly awaiting the wedding day, right? This divine wedding when Christ will return for his bride and we will forever be joined to him. Are you living with that anticipation? What are brides doing? leading up to their wedding day. They're getting ready. They're planning. They're preparing. They're anticipating. Their mind is constantly on that day, on the wedding day. That's where our minds and our hearts should be as well as the bride of Christ. We're awaiting eagerly and yearning for his return. Come for that divine wedding day. Revelation 1-7 says, Behold, he's coming with the clouds, and that every eye will see him. And at the very end of the book, what then is the bride's response? It says, he who testifies to these things says, 
Surely I'm coming soon. There's our hope. The bridegroom says, I'm coming soon. The divine wedding day is coming. What's our response then? Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Are you looking for that return? Let's pray this morning.